right. Good morning. It is, it is good to see you, to look out and see your smiling faces out there. Love this. Love the opportunity we have to, to be together. If you're new here, maybe we haven't had the chance to meet yet. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm grateful to be here with you this morning as we explore this whole notion of, of hope. Hope is such a crucial part of our lives. If somebody doesn't have hope, if somebody is hopeless, oh, it just drains life out of you. If you've ever had those moments that have felt hopeless, you know what that is. Hope is vital to a flourishing life. And so we look at hope. These days we could use some hope, couldn't we? We look at the, the world around us. It seems like there's new reports every day that we get in our news feed about some part of our world that is breaking, some, some system or structure that we have come to count on that is falling apart, uh, wars and rumors of wars around the world, right? And we can sometimes feel hopeless in that we need hope. Some of you are walking through your own world falling apart. The things that you thought you could always count on just aren't there. Marriage, friendships, children, parents, we need hope. But let's remember in this season that hope is not a philosophy. Hope is not a theory. Hope is not a wish or a fantasy. Hope is a man. Hope is a man. And that man is Jesus. As we explore hope together, the idea is not just to hold out hope here that we can look at it. The, the idea is to take hope in, to let hope reside, to let hope do something in us. As we learn what it is to walk with Jesus, to know his life, to live his life, to share his life with those around us, let hope reside within and do its work within us. To explore that, we're looking at a, a couple of passages in the first chapter of Luke. And we looked here last week also in uh, Zechariah's song. There's these two hymns or songs or poems that we find in the first chapter of Luke. One is by Mary, and we're going to begin exploring that next week. And last week and this week, we're looking at Zephaniah's song, Zephaniah. Zephaniah was the father of John the baptizer, the one who came uh, to make a way, to make a straight way. A, a prophet lead, like lead block uh, for Messiah when he would come. That's Jesus. And so Zephaniah, and we're not going to recount his whole story. You can catch that as you read in Luke 1 also. Uh, but Zephaniah in this moment of jubilation, this moment of freedom where his tongue that has been silenced is loosed. These are the words that flow from his mouth in Luke chapter 1. You can read along as I read out loud. So this is Zechariah's song, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of, the servant, of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the, the, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, 
to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. What a glorious song that rings out of Zechariah's, not Zephaniah, Zechariah's mouth. This beautiful song in the midst of this waiting, this yearning, this when will you come, Lord? Right? We talked about that last week. In the midst of this waiting, out of this waiting comes salvation. And so this hope that stirs in us, the hope that is Jesus, brings us salvation. All of us. And it talks about salvation in these passages, and we want to take some time and we want, to, we want to mind this. There's gold here as we understand what God is doing. And so let's look at that together. What is this hope of salvation that comes through Christ prophesied in Zechariah's words? Before we do that, let's pray. Father, would you stir your spirit within us? We open ourselves up to you today with humble expectation. Speak to us. Fill us with your hope by the power of your spirit. Let us be a people of hope, ambassadors of hope. Father, would you uh, this morning, by the power of your spirit, give us eyes to see what we so often are just blind to. Would you, by the power of your spirit, open our ears, unplug our stopped up ears, our deaf ears, and make us hear? And Father, would you do a work in our hearts, soften our hearts, because so often we're stubborn. We're stubborn. And so soften our stubborn, hard hearts that we might be pliable in your hands. We pray this today as we look at your word empowered by your spirit and say, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray it in his name, amen. Amen. See, in Jesus, our hope is salvation for the guilty. This is incredibly good news for each of us. And one of the things that I want us to do, there's a lot here that Zechariah is drawing from that comes from what for us is our Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures. See, the Old Testament is not just like the... uh, you know, you've got an appendix, unless you've had it taken out. You've got an appendix, but nobody really knows what the appendix does. It's in there, but nobody really knows what it does. Sometimes we treat the Old Testament a bit like the appendix uh, of the body, right? Like, it's there, we should kind of know it, and there's some good stuff there. But, but the real stuff comes in the New Testament. 
Well, it's important for us to understand what's going on in the Old Testament because it sets the stage. It gives us the context. See, Jesus understood himself coming in light of what had been happening throughout the story of Israel recorded for us in our Old Testament. We understand salvation in light of what God has been doing in and through his people in the Old Testament. So if we want to understand Jesus, if we want to understand life in Jesus, we go back and understand in that context because these words don't just fall out of the air from somewhere. They mean something and they come from a context. And that context is what God has been doing. And so when we say salvation, when we say saved, it means something because that context has been given to us. And so one of the the places that we look for this context is in the Old Testament and we see uh, certain cycles in the, the nation of Israel, in God's people, we see certain cycles that takes, takes place there. We see God's uh, creation of people. We see God's calling of people, right? Come be my people. We see them at various places along the journey of becoming God's people and settling in God's land of promise. But whatever it is, again, these are cycles, and we see it multiple times uh, throughout the, the Old Testament, And what we see here is after this calling, after this being with God, there's disobedience to God, right? There there always is. There's disobedience to God birthed from desire apart from him. We see that back in Genesis chapter 3. God said, you're going to walk with me. You're going to be with me in in Eden. You're going to be with me in this perfect environment. And what did humanity want? They wanted the knowledge of good and evil apart from God. They desired wisdom. And instead of finding wisdom with God, they desired wisdom apart from God. And they took the, the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? Their disobedience was birthed in desire. And we see this over and over and over again in God's people. And out of that uh, uh, disobedience to God, birthed in desire apart from him, God disciplines, right? There's a, a, a pushing away, a removal from his presence and blessing. And what he's ultimately doing is he's giving them over to their desires, giving them over to their desires. You want wisdom apart from me, you no longer get to reside in Eden with me. The nation of Israel, we want a king. And God says, well, a king is going to make your sons go to war. He's going to take your daughters in his harem. He's going to oppress you with taxes. Yes, we want a king. We don't want to follow you, Yahweh. We want a king like all the other nations. And so God gives them over to their desires. They want to be like other nations, so they worship other gods. He gives them over to their desires. God's discipline, most often recorded in Scripture, is he removes his hand of blessing and he gives them over to their desires. Sin is fueled by desire. Rebellion against God is fueled by desire, that which is desired. And God's discipline, sometimes even in Scripture referred to as God's wrath, is his removal of blessing and the giving over of desire. And as he gives them over to desire, withdraws his blessing, gives them to desire, God's withdrawal leads to some version of exile, right? Exiled from 
Eden, Israel exiled from the promised land. It's this removal. You are now captive by your enemies, right? That's what exile is. You're no longer in the land of promise covered under my blessing for you. You are removed from the land of promise. You are removed from the place of blessing. You are given over to your desires. As a matter of fact, you are now held captive by your enemy, treasonous desires. And God used enemy nations of Israel as his arm of discipline in Israel's life. Disobedience, born from desire. Discipline, removal of blessing, giving them over to desire. That desire continues to fan into a fiery, consuming flame, which leads to God's withdrawal into exile, captive by enemies. And then God rescues from a remnant a small portion of that, God rescues his people from exile and brings them home back into the land of promise, into the new Eden. Over and over and over again, these cycles exist. And so as Zechariah proclaims salvation, these are the things that are running through his mind. These are the things that are, are fueling his gratitude and his praise that is bursting forth. And if we pay attention to these things, we see that you and I, we can't just look at Israel, tap our foot and roll our eyes and go, oh, you guys, there you go again. Because what Israel is for us, what Israel is for us is a mirror. Because you and I are them. You and I, I do, you do, we do the exact same thing. And we disobey God, born out of our own desires. Sometimes we want our, to speak about our sin just as in this thing that I did, like, oopsie. But when we understand what's happening, it's birthed in desires, in the depth of our belly, in, in, in our wants. Our sin, our rebellion, we disobey God's love and we, uh, God's law, and we rebel against God's love. And He gives us over to our own desires. He removes His hand of blessing and gives us to our own desires, and we become consumed by our own desires. And soon what we find is they own us. They own us. Your desire to find security in your wealth. It's not just I work hard and provide for my family, but in time what we find is we ruminate over and over on what if I don't have enough? I don't know that I have enough. What if we don't have enough? What if we this? What if we don't that? What if, right, it begins to ruminate in our mind. What is that rumination? It's handcuffs clicking tightly on our wrists. It holds us fast. Soon we are owned by our desires, which set us opposed as God's enemy. We so badly want to um, be in, to be, uh, you know, to, to validate the, the tribe that we're a part of. And so we gossip and we slander 
and we undermine so that we can have right standing, so that we can have the significance of relationship around us. But soon what happens is the gossip and the slander is a desire that burns within us like a consuming fire, and now it owns us. Our desire for pleasure. And so we pursue the pleasure, we pursue significance through our sexuality. And we think that we own it, but what we find is that it is a desire that consumes us like a raging fire, and it owns us. You and I find ourselves in these same cycles. Scripture becomes a mirror for us that causes us to go, oh, what shall I do? And the harder we try to untangle ourselves from that which binds us, the more ensnared we become. When you were a little kid, this is when I was a little kid, maybe it wasn't true for, but like the worst fear that I could think of, short of watching Jaws, was quicksand. Like there's always quick, like no matter where you go, there could be some version of quicksand. It might be in your living room where you have to hop from couch to chair to coffee table or something. Don't fall in the quicksand. Like somewhere in our, in our children's guide, we got this notion that you're going to die from quicksand. And so uh, you look at quicksand and what does it do? It ensnares you. You're in it. And the more you fight, the more you try to get out, the more it sucks you in. This is what happens in our desires. The more we fight, the more we wrestle, the more ensnared snared we become, leading to our own destruction and death. See, the more we are governed by the great enemy of our desire, the less human we become. You see, there's this, this tricky little thing that we do, this wordplay that we have in our own minds when we fail, when we fall short, when we sin, when we give in to desire. We say, I'm just being human. It's actually the opposite. You're becoming a beast and less human. And the more we give in to desire on our own terms, the more we are given over to it. The more we are given over to it, the more it steals what we were created to be as image bearers of the creator. We become less human. And in a moment of realization, we go, God, what can we do? See, this is the place of waiting. This is the place of longing that we find ourselves in, where this gratitude, this praise empowered by God's spirit in Zechariah comes bursting forth, and he cries out in the midst of all we have been waiting for and longing for comes salvation. Listen to how he talks about this in verse 69. He says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn of salvation speaks of a king who saves his people. The thing about a king, a good king, a righteous king, a proper king, a king is of his people and represents his people. Against other nations and kingdoms, the king represents his people. The king is of his people, caring for, protecting, and guarding his people. A king represents the people and is of the people. Herod, at the time that Zechariah said this, the time that Jesus was born, we had King Herod, 
who understood himself to be king of the Jews, but he could never be king of the Jews because he was not ever one of them. He lorded over, as the Gentiles do, is a phrase that Jesus would use to talk about leadership in his day. Lording it over, as the Gentiles do, Herod could never be king of the Jews. Only one of them could rise up and become their king. And so Zechariah is saying, the time of waiting is coming to an end. The horn of salvation... The king who will save us is drawing near. And he talks about how salvation comes. What is this salvation that he talks about? Look at um, verses uh, 72, uh, 72, 73. To show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. This whole notion of mercy to our ancestors. God had made promises of his salvation. Every time Israel would go into these cycles, he would promise salvation. Like you're in exile, but I will come rescue. You are in exile, but I will send one who will rescue you. And that's where we get these prophets speaking of uh, the anointed one, Messiah. That there will be a day when God himself will come as the horn of salvation and rescue his own people. And so he's talking about, he references the horn of salvation, right? Promised to King David. We talked a little bit about that last week. We talked about uh, the covenant promise made to Abraham. But I want to visit that again here real briefly. We get this covenant um, uh, of Abraham. We read about it in Genesis 15. But I want to make sure we have a little bit of context here. Take Genesis 15. You look at it a little bit more yourself. But, but a covenant was often spoken of in terms of we cut a covenant. And so per, two parties would come together and they would actually kill an animal. And then the two parties together would walk through the sliced pieces of the animal saying, may it be done to us if either one of us breaks this covenant promise. Right, so we're walking through the animals. We've got we're making a covenant together, and we walk through together. Like if I break my end of covenant, may I become like this animal? And you're saying if I break my end of the covenant, may I become like this animal? Right. So in Genesis 15, we see this scenario where God instructs Abraham to go get certain animals and slice them in half and set them apart. And then Abraham, we're told, falls into a sleep, and God shows up as a smoking censer, like a little little ball on fire, and this is God, and Abraham is off to the side sleeping, and God passes through the split animals. What is God communicating there? I am entering into covenant with you, Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will raise you up to be a people. I will bless you, and you will bless all people over the earth. This is the covenant. This is the promise we make to each other. You're going to be obedient to me, and I'm going to be your God, right? If either of us breaks this promise... Death is the response to become like these animals. But who's the only one who walks through the animals? God. Abraham is protected off to the side asleep, but God himself walks through there. And what God is saying is, if either of us breaks our covenant, I will become like these animals. And so what we see in the horn of salvation being raised up, the promise of God expressed through ancestors and the covenant of Abraham is that God himself would take on the curse of broken covenant. And what we know by this time is Israel has broken covenant over and over and over again. And so who will be the one who will take on the sin and brokenness? God himself 
is taking on. Praise be to God, says Zechariah. A horn of salvation has arisen. God himself has come to bring about salvation for his people. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Remember how we talked about what sin does to us. It gives over to our desires. We're held captive by our enemies. Paul says God has moved us from being enemies to sons and daughters. God himself has come to take upon the weight and burden of sin, the broken covenant, that we might be freed from our enemies, no longer held captive by enemy nations, no longer held captive by desires that consume Rescued from enemies. So salvation is this rescue, this drawing from exile and bringing home. Taking that which was far away and bringing it home. Jesus uses this same language. He says, you want to know the love of the Father? He leaves 99 to go find one sheep. The sheep that has wandered far away, the, the sheep in exile, he goes and gets him and brings him back. Do you want to know what the love of the father is? It's like a father who had two sons and the son in re rejects his father, rejects his father's love, goes to what? A far off land. And when coming to his senses, comes home and the father envelops him with his love and draws him into his family as his son. This is what God does. He saves us. It's not a transaction. Whew, wiped that ledger clean, and now I continue to go off and do what I want. Salvation is an invitation to come from the far country where you have chosen to live under captivity of your enemy, your desires to come home and live in the beautiful fruitfulness and flourishing of Eden in the presence of God once again. This is salvation. And he brings it about through the forgiveness of sins. He talks about this in verse 77. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. This beautiful picture of what forgiveness of sins is. It certainly is a, a wiping of the ledger. But it is an invitation from the far country to come home once again. This is the invitation of God in his forgiveness of sin, that we might be with him, for in him and him alone is flourishing and life, life that can never be stolen or held captive again. This is the work of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And the only way to experience reconciliation with God is through the forgiveness of sins. We can't be living in the far off land. We can't be living in exile and start saying, well, I'm going to be good enough to earn my way back to the promised land. It never happens. As we find ourselves, and we all do, as we find ourselves living in the land of exile, the land that is far away, a far off land, it is the beckoning grace of God through Christ that draws us home. And there is no other way. There is no goodness. There is no intelligence. There is no wealth. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. For those who approach with empty pockets and say, I've got nothing. Those are the very ones who experience the good news of the kingdom of God that has rescued from the enemies and brought us into his home to become the people of his love and affection. And so we see this taking place. Zechariah is saying, it's just about to happen. My son, you're the one who's making the way. You are the prophet that is preparing a people for the horn of salvation is being raised up, the rescue of our souls, the one who brings salvation, who rescues us from our enemies is upon us. And it culminates in the sacrificial death of Jesus where he overcomes our enemy, sin and desire. And he wears the crown of a king. On the cross is where he becomes king. In that which looks like offense and curse, the son of God becomes king where he rules and reigns over his enemy, rebellion and sin. And salvation frees us from the sin that takes, that takes us from God and what he does is he empowers us. Look at verses 47, uh, excuse me, 74 and 75 again. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It is a work of his salvation that empowers us to live in holiness and righteousness, to draw 